Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audio books. If you want to listen to a book, if you want a free audio book download with a free 30-day trial, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. You have to spell it out in the traditional way, audibletrial.com slash other people. Get an audiobook. These are books that you can listen to. Go and get one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Hi, everybody. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. (laughs) Hello, this is Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. How's it going? It's good to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I'm here in Los Angeles. I almost forgot to do the show. I don't know what I don't know what happened. I was literally packing up, getting ready to go to bed, and then it dawned on me that I hadn't recorded. I had a senior moment. It's how busy my life is. I just I forget things. I've got a lot going on this week. I got to go out of town, uh, you know, to New Orleans for the funeral of my godfather, my uncle Elmore, and uh, I want to say a word about him. Um, you know, we always lived far apart, so I never really got to spend a lot of concentrated time with him, but the time that I did get to spend with him was always good. He was one of those guys that everybody like really loved. And I know people always say that when somebody dies, but this is the truth. Uh, his name was Elmore Chauvin. He's a Cajun, spoke French and was just a hell of a good time. It, it like words won't do it justice. But I've been thinking about him a lot, obviously, because he's been ill and uh, now he's passed away. And, uh, you know, when people die, when uh, they check out people close to you, you know, you find yourself uh, reflective. I find myself reflective. I find myself thinking about legacy. And it can be easy to sort of fall into this mode of thought where you think to yourself, well, you know, nothing I do matters and uh, I'm living this little life. It's insignificant. I'm, you know, I'm the tiny little dot in the universe or whatever it is, but 
you know, I've had a couple of people pass away recently, like, uh, um, uh, a good friend of ours, her mother passed away. We knew her well, my wife really knew her well. And, uh, now my uncle Elmore, my godfather. And, uh, in both cases, these are people who are unusually full of life, unusually, uh, fun at a party, those kinds of people. And when you know people like that, they leave a legacy. They leave an imprint on you. And it's not insignificant. And in both cases, both my uncle Elmore and uh, my friend uh, Ryan's mom, Barb, uh, both were in very good marriages. And were married for, I don't know what it was, 50 years? Close to 50 years in both cases, if not 50. And when you know people who are in a relationship like that and it's good and it's solid for that long, that's its own kind of legacy. And, uh, it's a big gift to everyone around them. So that's on my mind this week. Like rest in peace, uncle Elmore, rest in peace, Barb. I'll try to, uh, like live up to the example that you set. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to shoot for. So there's that, uh, I'm going to be heading out of town. I'm, you know, now I've got, I've got to get this show done. I've got to get myself packed two funerals in a week. I got to pick up my suit tomorrow. I have one suit. I actually I have more than one suit, but I have one black suit. I feel like I have to wear a black suit to a funeral. I wore it this past weekend and, uh, now I've got to, I got it cleaned and then I've got to go to another funeral. And then what's really odd too, is that, uh, both Barb and my uncle Elmore passed away, uh, after battling multiple, multiple myeloma, which is a rare form of cancer. Like, what are the odds of that? Anyway, uh, I don't mean to start. I, I truly don't mean to start on a uh, down note. I actually mean to say all of that in a way that is hopefully uh, somewhat inspiring, you know, trying to mind a sad moment for the good. And there's always a lot of good in a weird way when uh, one is confronted with loss. I mean, obviously it's terrible. Obviously you wish it hadn't happened but it, it kind of forces things into a sharp focus for me. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Melissa Yancey. Uh, I had a great time talking with her. She came over the other day. She has a story collection out 
called Dog Years. It is the recipient of the 2016 Drew Hines Prize for Literature. And uh, just a delight. And she brought me a bottle of wine, which is uh, always going to score points with me. I encourage everybody who does this show to bring me a bottle of wine. (laughs) Bring me alcohol. Win my favor. I'll say nice things about you on the air. Uh, But truly, Melissa is one of these people who uh, she sort of emanates goodness. And I really had a nice time with her here. And uh, her story collection, again, is called Dog Years. Here you go, folks. This is Melissa Yancey. I have been busy. And, I, and we should also say briefly, I don't want to make this about me, but <laughs> Melissa has been extremely patient. Um, today happened to be, I think this is like the death throes of the chaos that has been enveloping me since we moved. Um, like, uh, you know, renovating this uh, space to record in, getting stuff done, moving, all of it has required quite a bit. And then I've been having recurring problems with AT&T, which for people who listen to me on Twitter, uh, you know that I've been having customer service issues with AT&T. I'm very happy to report that Melissa was here to witness an AT&T technician at my house. Uh, he was an hour late, but I think he solved my problem, at least temporarily. I'm not lying. That's what I want to say. I can confirm that. Okay. But it's a lovely house. It is a lovely house, and we have a good space in here now. It is. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not completely done yet, but we're functional. I don't think it sounds too much like a cell block. I'm seeing your problems in a new context, though. You are. Because you, your family's so lovely. Your home is lovely. Do I make it seem like it's like worse than it is when I'm... Am I trying to uh, like blow this up into a different realm when I'm on the social media? <laughs> no. Or, or on my show? <laughs> no, but I, I'm guilty of the same thing um, where I have just, you know... a abundance of riches and my pro- i hate i hate the expression first world problems right i, I hate it it really yeah. bothers me yeah um white i, pe- I need to find another pe- way to say that white people problems first world problems yeah. but i, I you, resist that but you know I, th- I think about this a lot because there's so much suffering in the world so much and everybody has it including people who have everything do you know what i'm saying like yes. everything and you know, like there are people who have, uh, you know, $20 billion. They're suffering. There are people who live in a mud hut. They might be suffering less <laughs> in a weird way. Like, I don't know. It's like, it's a hard problem to wrap my head around. And, um, I think that maybe to reduce it to something that's manageable, it's just about appreciating what you have and being grateful, which is, I think what you were kind of alluding to earlier. Yeah. I think Maslow's hierarchy of needs is like a real at least it, one of the few theories that I've you know, learned at, in high school or whenever you learn that, that still is something I think about today. What is that? Did I learn that? <laughs> Depends on where you went to school. <laughs> where, where are my needs? That, that's the theory that you know, it's, a tr- it's a triangle. Right. And at the bottom of the triangle is um, food, water, you know, those essentials. Wi-Fi. Um, Wi-Fi in this case. <laughs> and as you move up um, the triangle, the needs become, you know, you, you move into um, things like love and attachment and, and beyond that. And sort of at the highest piece of it is, you know, spiritual enlightenment. But the theory is you don't really move on to worrying about the next level of needs until that, that bottom level is met right. and, and so on. But whatever level you're on, those are the problems that are you know, most present to you and what you are. So if I'm a person who does think about spirituality a lot, which I think I do, that means I'm a lucky guy. Probably. Yeah. See, I mean, you know, and it's like, uh, 
I don't want to be a, you know, you just don't want to be a dick in life. You know what I'm saying? Like yes. you don't want to be one of those people who's blind. Uh, and it's hard. It can be hard. Cause I think problems like time mm. are very real to all of us. Right. Uh, no matter what. And those, those problems can really plague you no matter how fortunate you are. Um, yeah, that's something I think about a lot. Something that I've, I've started to write about time, I think more explicitly. Like how so? Like, give me an example. Um, I think, well, the, the, the title story, uh, in my collection is, is about parents that are dealing with, um, a son that has a degenerative disorder. And so time is kind of working in a very weird way for them, um, because they're seeing him regress year after year, which is seeing your child grow up is this bittersweet thing, you know, no matter what, um, right. it's for some reason, excruciatingly painful for people to see their children, um, grow up in this case, they're having that and they're seeing him regress year after year. So it has this, uh, this double meaning and, and they're scientists. So they're actually engaged in work to find a cure, which they know they're never going to find in their son's lifetime. Um, it's a very, uh, lifetime movie premise. The story. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm with you though. <laughs> Intentionally so. Um, but I feel like the day-to-day sort of suffering that this character is having um, and the way they're experiencing time is just my day-to-day. It's amplified because of these circumstances that they're in, but the way that they're just so burdened by the passage of time. Yeah. Um, it goes feels, fast too. feels like every parent's experience, even though this is kind of an extreme lens. I feel like life goes so fast. Uh, I just lost my godfather like today, yesterday, you know, he's been sick for a long time, but I mean, it's like starting to hit me. You're like, Oh my mm-hmm. God, like all those Christmases, all those holidays, uh, I went to dinner with him in new Orleans. He came out to visit. Like, it's just a crusher. It's an absolute crusher. And I feel like it went by in five minutes and yeah. it's such a cliche thing to say, but that really is the, that's the, the feeling that you have. You that, know. I mean, that's the thing about cliches. Yeah, they're true. Yeah, yeah. They're true. They've got a truth. So, you know, um, are you somebody who, uh, do you have like a, do you feel like you have like excessive fear of death? Is that what time, like this time obsession is related to? No, I don't, not that I'm aware of. <laughs> yeah. I'm not plugged into that if that's where the fear is coming from. No, I think it's just what, you know, what everybody, um, experiences and, one of I heard something that Lori Moore said, and it actually is is in the story, even though I'm not referencing Lori Moore in the story. Um, that that twenty is the perceptual halfway point of your life because of how you experience time as you age. So I, you know, and everyone wants to think that like the halfway point of your life is whatever forty five, fifty. If you think you're going to live to a hundred. Um, that that completely freaked me out to think that 20 was the perceptual halfway point that all the years after 20 would Go, feel like the years before 20. Cause they go so fast. Yeah. That's a ter- terrifying. I feel like, yeah, I know. And I feel like a week goes by so fast. It like, does. I go through, I, you know, you're working, you're doing stuff. You're like, Oh shit. Now it's the weekend again. And like, it, you know, I get, uh, this is maybe something that I need to work on, but I get so wrapped up in work and being busy that when the weekends come, I can feel agitated. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, Oh shit. Now I can't work. Um, I got stuff to do. And it's like, I got to find a way to put that aside and like compartmentalize my time. Yeah. Do you ever struggle with that? Oh, every day, Okay. every day. And I'm my, not alone. My father is one of these, these people who's, who's really struggled with it his whole life. 
and he's retired and he's he's 78 and you'd think he wouldn't still be struggling with that day to day and he totally does it makes him it makes him crazy as a retired man yeah well, how so? He's got so much on his to-do list. He likes to keep busy. Yeah. And That's like, good, though. He, but he also likes to have, and I think this is maybe the artist temperament. Is he an artist? He's not. He's more like a frustrated... He's an omnivore, I would say. Maybe a frustrated artist through most of his life. Um, he likes to have huge pockets of time you know, for a reflection, to, to walk, to to bike, to be out in nature. And it I sounds like me he likes to guard that time really closely. And so that makes him sort of frantic about all the other things kind of encroaching. Did you feel that as a kid growing up? Yes. Was it problematic for you? It was problematic for my mom for sure. Right. Um, Cause I'm kind of that way. And I feel like sometimes my wife will be like, you know, uh, like, you know, like, like she feels, she told me like, she'll tell me sometimes like, uh, you know, she's working to make sure that I have that time uh-huh. and I feel like I need it. And yet I don't want to be somebody who, um, is difficult to be around yeah. or who I don't want to be selfish. Uh-huh. You know, like daddy needs his time. Yeah. I don't want my daughter to like grow up being like, Oh, this is when daddy needed his quiet. <laughs> daddy needs to go podcast in the garage or you know, but I'm a person, I'll tell you exactly where it manifests is with exercise. Mm -hmm. If I don't do that, I have a lot of energy. And if I don't burn some of it off, uh, like mental and physical, and if I don't have that time or, you know, the meditation too, like it's hard for me. Like it's, it's about maintenance for me. Um, and trying to, you know, wanting to be my best self. So maybe that's what your dad was doing. I mean, he's trying, he's trying to be as good as he can be and functional. And I think he just never got to the place when he was younger where he could say, okay, he could negotiate that. Hierarchy of needs. Say, this is, <laughs> this is the time I have to set aside for this, but I'm going to fulfill these commitments and keep everyone else from going crazy. Um, as long as I can get, you know, this for myself. He didn't know how to negotiate that. I think he would just internalize it and then lash out. Get frustrated. Um, and get really frustrated. And then with his, he's been married three times. So it's been interesting to kind of see his evolution. And um, I think in his third marriage, he really figured out how to do that better and really assert sort of what's the difference. He just learned how to communicate it. He finally, you know, just trial and error. I think he didn't want to screw it up again. You know, and every partner is different. And and I think he also at at, at some level had kind of given up on certain things. He he'd reached an age where he realized, okay, I'm not ever gonna be a composer professionally, or I'm not going to pursue these, you know, 10, he would just have lots of, um, flights of fancy, I think of things he wanted to do. And he kind of focused then on the few things that he really loved to do. Well, like, what, like, yeah, what are the, what are his passions? Does, like, if he's a, perhaps a frustrated artist, do you know what kind? I think he really wanted to be a composer. Mm-hmm. He's musical. He's musical. Are you musical? Um, no. No. It's a great disappointment to him. Well, but I'm the, whatever the opposite of musical is. Yeah. It has to, I'm just, there's something really wrong. I wish I had it. I don't. my brain. Yeah. Um, in that department. But um, he's also a photographer and he's a really avid reader. Um, he just loves, you know, to consume sort of all kinds of culture. Um, but his, prof- like professionally, he was a truck driver. Okay. Um, for most of his career. And yeah, I think he like was... long haul, like 18 wheeler. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's a job I idealized as a young man. I, it, and he, he did, I think for the same reasons he, he liked it. Re- the reflection. Yeah. He the, liked all that. Nobody lording over mm-hmm. you. 
Yeah. Okay. He really enjoyed it. Actually, I think I need to hang with your dad. <laughs> when he had to go into management, um, he hated that. Because he had to deal with yeah. people. Yeah. He had to train. You know, he enjoyed actually working with the guys, but there's just all the drama that goes along with management. So he, I think he was happier when he See an introvert? had a long time. He's not really. I think he's... Um, Neither am I. I think he's in between or, or both. I think I might be yeah. your father. There's something I have to tell you. <laughs> um, wow. Okay. So, and then what about your mom? Um, my mom is, my mom is, is super analytical and, and anxious and neurotic in a totally different way. So bad combination. Um, she comes from a family of, of real eccentrics. Um, Artistic of, eccentric or just eccentric like... You know, like peacock feathers and I don't even know where that, I don't even know how that delusional. Okay. Um, there's a, there's a story in the collection about one of her, about her sister, actually. They were, everyone in her family sort of envisioned these very glamorous, you know, romanticized lives and then lived in like a hovel. And, and drank and smoked all day and had no interaction with the outside world. They had these very rich sort of lives of, you know, inner lives and, um, oh my God, I think I'm your mom too. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good combination of, of parents for a writer. Yeah. I well, think. I'm always fascinated in like the, you know, the way that writers are formed, you know, and I think like your parents and the way that you're raised, I mean, there's always like the combinations, uh, that's what causes it. And then also mm. the, the circumstances, the environment that you yeah. grow up in. Um, I think we talked before we came in the air. You said you're from Arizona. Yes. Okay. Or we were sound checking, and you said you were from yes. Arizona. So where in Arizona? Phoenix. All right. That's a strange town, and I don't mean to badmouth it. I'm just saying yeah. I, I had a strange I had a strange experience of it. It seemed kind of like a, like Marsy, you know. It's just, um, I don't know. I felt I, I didn't feel comfortable there. I couldn't get settled when I was there. I was there for just a couple of days, but. Interesting. Could, yeah. And I'm in LA, which is also the desert. So I find the rest of the state to be more Marzy. Um, yeah. the rest of Arizona, my dad is a, I mean, his family goes back generations in Arizona, but I wanted to leave Phoenix, um, probably from age four, five. I don't ever <laughs> remember a time that I thought this is okay. It's gotta be so mercilessly hot right about now there. It is. How do you always. cope with 120 degrees? Well, if you, if you grow up there, you just, you just use just like within Northwest. I think the same thing yeah. about, uh, the deep South where my parents mm -hmm. are from. Like my parents grew up without air conditioning in Louisiana. What the fuck? It's, that's just, you just dealt. Yeah. And I, your blood actually does, you know, adapt like it does to cold climates. Okay. You know, I'm sure to some, and plus it's freezing cold in Phoenix everywhere. What? Oh, because of the air conditioning. Yeah, with the air, the yeah. AC. So, um, it's livable, but you mean like in the summer you're inside a lot. Oh, all the time. It's you can't terrible. Go, you can't go you out can't, and play. No, you can't enjoy. Right. So, okay, outdoors. So, so what about it aside from that? Did you, uh, you know, what repelled you? Why did, why from the age of four did you want to get out of there? I don't know. I don't know. I, on Sesame street, uh, Big Bird went to China, and I got really obsessed with China. Yeah, and it's like wanderlust. Remember when? Remember when like Snuffleupagus and Big Bird went to like some island and they found a mountain that was shaped like Snuffleupagus. I don't remember that one. But I have I, a pretty bad memory. I remember it. that though, from the perspective of wanderlust, wanting to be like, oh wow, they're exploring. Like I remember yeah. like really like latching onto that. Yeah, we never went anywhere. Even though your dad was a trucker. Yeah, we he couldn't he pack mostly, you pack in the cab. No, he mostly went in the state. 
Oh. So the northern parts of the state. So, I mean, we, we came to Los Angeles. That was the only place I think we ever went. And now here you are. Home. Yeah. Well, I didn't like Los Angeles either because it was like our one vacation yeah. destination. It's not a very good vacation from Phoenix. It's a hard place to vacation, period, mm-hmm. I think. It is. It doesn't, it's not an easy town for the traveler. It can be nice to live here, but I think that... Uh, you know, getting here as a, as a vacationer, it's like, where do you go? And like, you have to drive everywhere. And it's, it's a lot of pressure when you try to show the city to someone who doesn't live here and, and someone who doesn't like it because you kind of want to prove like, no, 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 you don't know Los Angeles. Let <laughs> right. me show you some real Los Angeles. Right. You can't, you know, you can't possibly cram it all in. So how long have you been here? Uh, 17 years. Okay. And, uh, what brought you here? I came down here for grad school. Okay, that's why I came here. For MBW. Yeah. Yeah. My God. It's all coming together now. So we we were in class together? I don't think so. Okay. I just had like a total terrified fear that like we sat next to each no, other in a workshop. I don't, I don't think so. Do you remember me from then? No. no. Okay. No. Okay. I think good. I would. Yeah. I feel like I would too. I mean yeah. I I'm, I'm really bad with names and faces. Or I'm really bad with names, but not you know, I Well think we I'm... might not have overlapped. When were you there? I started in ninety nine. Oh no, you were there before me. Okay. What did you, what was your experience of it? Did you like it? I mean, we could spend the whole time on that. <laughs> so I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, I know that there were some, like some good autopsies in, uh, you know, like the LA weekly and yeah. the times and stuff. And the, there well, were scandals. So, there were scandals. Yeah. So Royan did one for the nervous breakdown. Right. He wrote it a little, which I think was a bit of a rosy take. Yeah. on the glory days right. of the program. They had um, a g- lot of great teachers in that program. Like a lot of great, you know, there's some good writers. I found like what I always say about graduate school and I, I speak of it in generalities. Um, maybe people had different experiences than, in, you know, in other places. But for me, I can't imagine it ever being anything, but just like a space to hide out and, uh, write. Like it just gives you time. And like, then you also have some community. Like, can anybody really teach you how to do this? I mean, maybe they can point you in the right direction here and there, but like, I don't know for me, I like, I, I took full advantage of the time. I wrote a book during that mm-hmm. time. I loved having the time and I loved being able to go and like hang out with other writers, but like I never expected, I guess, some huge academic experience. Uh, I, I didn't go in there expecting it. So I wasn't let down. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in any program making use of the time is the most valuable thing you can do, but I do think there's, there are many degrees of sort of instruction and, uh, you can get a lot out of a very short period of time with a really brilliant writer. And I didn't do workshops for a long time after, after the program. Um, I was just holed up the program. (laughs) I was holed up writing, um, novels for a long time. And I didn't, I didn't, I had a kind of a writing group, but that fizzled out and I didn't do any workshops and I just was soured on the whole workshop experience. Why? Well, the, I felt like the program was so bad and, and then I did a lot of workshops as an undergraduate. Well, there were a lot of, I thought there were a lot of writers in there who should not have been in a graduate. They just let everybody in. It was too much. That was like the secret of like, there was, it It wasn't selective admission process. Yeah. It was money. It was just a cash cow. It was a cash cow. So, and, but I have so many friends actually, some of my best friends today are still people from the program. And so that was really what I got out of the program. Me too. Yeah. Was some incredible relationships, but I just didn't workshop for, um, for so long. And then I went to Tin House, um, in 2010 and 
I was the right time for me where I was ready to sort of engage in a different way. And I feel like every workshop I've had since then, I've gotten so much out of it, even when it was just a like, weekend workshop. Hmm. Um, and you're talking about the Tin House Writers Conference or something? Mm-hmm. Okay, up in... Uh, in or- Portland. In Portland, Oregon. Okay. And then I've done a lot of little weekend uh, workshops since then with some really, really good writers. and Like whom? Um, well, the, the workshop at Tin House was Anthony Dore. It was Tony Dore. Yeah. And then since then, I've done, um, gosh, what are some of them? Um, Marissa Silver, uh, John Freeman was amazing. I mean, he's a writer, you know, slash critic slash editor. Um, so he had a really different perspective. Um, Anthony Mara was a recent one that was really good. Um, Nancy Zaffris, who edits the Flannery O'Connor, she... She has a great perspective because she reads so many story collections yeah. every single year. Yeah. And some of these, it's just two days or one, you know, class with the person. And Did you do that for like, you work your collection through those different workshops? Do you know what I'm saying? Did you take all your stories through there? Or? Um, some of them. Yeah. Some of them I did. Um, and for me, sometimes it's just having the deadline is what helps me. I think you're right to the degree that there's only so much, you know, an instructor can, you, you have to be fully participating. Um, I think when I have to turn a story into someone who I really, really admire, I get so terrified that it forces me off of like whatever kind of plateau I might've been in and I will push myself, um, to kind of, you know, take a leap in the work. Make it better. Yes. Like before you hand it to them. Yes. Yeah. So half of that is me me and my anxiety about putting it in front of that human being. It's useful anxiety. And then the other half is what, you know, they give back. And it's, I think you can, it's, it's not instruction so much as it is, I guess, apprenticeship that can be really valuable. And I know that's kind of what the NPW, you know, model aspired to be, but at least for a fiction writer, you know, it wasn't, I don't think it was a good program, but, um, I don't know. I, I guess I just had low expectations. I just, I, I think in, in life, I, that's what I always say is, oh, I have low expectations, but yeah. that, 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 that didn't even meet my, I, but I, you know, I mean, I guess like a, in, in hindsight, it would be great if I had gotten into like Irvine or Iowa or one of these, like really like, I mean, there's a couple of them where it's sort of, you kind of come out of there a made man, you can get an agent and I don't know. It's like a, it's like a credential. It's like going, it's like being a comedian and going on Saturday night live. It can also really crush you if you go to those programs and those things don't happen. Yeah. You know, I know people that. Um, even undergraduate, they, you know, they went to Yale or, um, then they went to, you know, a top school for graduate school. And it's just, when you see like all of the, your undergrad friends, I don't know, doing the things that they do, like I, I, it can really mess with you. And I went to like an undergrad where everyone is a social worker or, you know, works in Where'd you um, go to undergrad? environmental nonprofits, Linfield in Oregon. Okay. It's like Oxy. Um, about the same, same size, kind of similar environment. So, which is what, like hippie school? No, not, no, just like middle of the road. Okay. Not a hippie school. Like, you know, sweatshirts and kids. It's really that kind of place. And so people don't, a lot of people become teachers, uh, nurses, academics. So like, I mean, like this is like the word ambition. I mean, like these aren't people who are like hyper competitive, ambitious, not that they don't have ambitions in life. But I think that some of these like really kind of hothouse academic environments, Ivy League or whatever, like there are people out there who are killers. You know, I think the difference, having seen what these people have gone on to sort of do with their lives versus, oh gosh, my friends went to the Ivy League. It's going to be mad (laughs) saying this, um, versus my friends who, who 
went to those schools is, is not the ambition so much as it is the entitlement that they had in their upbringing. And that could have been because they were really smart, like crazy book smart from, you know, a very young age. And so that they were on that trajectory. Right. Um, or it could have been because their family circumstances, um, where that was the expectation. But I think a lot of that had to do with um, feeling like this is who I'm supposed to be. This is a trajectory I'm supposed to be on. Where a lot of my friends from Linfield have had really amazing artistic um, and rewarding lives and interesting careers. And I think that they were just really open. They didn't go to college thinking, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm not. They weren't pre-med. Right. You know, usually, um, they wasn't like, I've got to go to like Silicon Valley and found the next unicorn or no, Yeah. but they've all, most of them have really done what I thought they would do in Mm. college. Like they, they're just more of themselves, which is really interesting, but they didn't come at like the reason I was, I was calling people killers earlier. And I say that with some, um, it's, it's, it's not a, uh, in the pejorative sense, Uh, like it's more like, wow, like there's some people who like they're 18 years old and they go to college and they are ready to buckle down and they want to learn <laughs> like um they're they're all about uh plotting their course and uh-huh. success and they have a vision i had none of that at 18 i had none of that i mean you know what i'm saying i still might not have all of it it's like i'm just amazed by people who have that level of intensity and they they see the world through and maybe accurately i mean to a degree through that competitive lens uh-huh. like you've got to be really good and you've got to get x y and z and you've got to do this this and that and my brain doesn't work that way. I wasn't, uh, I'm never like thinking in those terms and maybe I need to more. I don't know. I think I was one of those people at that age. You were, I think I was pretty intense. You were serious. Yeah. You weren't just fucking around. No, you didn't want to just take road trips. I took a lot of road trips, Okay, but college wasn't that rigorous academically. Right. So I could take a lot of road trips and still feel like I was really serious about school. Um, no, I was too serious. I was, I have a... At that age. Yeah, I have a, a, a tattoo here that people ask me about a lot. What is it? Let me see. It's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Okay. <laughs> uh, on my wrist for <laughs> listeners. And I got this when I was 18. And um, I got it after I'd had this summer working in a fish cannery in Alaska. Oh, you did that? I did. How was that? It was formative. It was like twenty dollars an hour. For what, sure. How much do they pay you? That's how everybody I, wants to make like a big, big I, chunk of money. I they don't go even up there. remember, but it, I mean, it paid a lot more than Minimum anything money. else paid, and they put you up. You know, they fly you up there, room, board. You know, pay for anything. Is it time. dangerous? No. Okay. Not not the jobs that I was. The boats are doing. dangerous. The boats are dangerous. Uh-huh. Yeah, the factory is not dangerous. Um, but it gave me a lot of perspective going up there. And did you like Alaska? I didn't really get to see that much of Alaska. You're like I was in a fucking factory the yeah, whole time. Yeah. Where, much. where were you in Anchorage? No, um, in, uh, Bristol Bay. Okay. Um, and Dilling, I'm get, I think I'm getting it right. Dillingham. Um, so I came back and I got this tattoo <laughs> and the tattoo is supposed to like remind me to take things less seriously, to really be more, more childlike. Okay. I don't think I was very childlike as a child why i don't know i think i was born that way just born that way it wasn't like you felt like as a child like some so like some sort of um gap that needed to be filled where like your parents were doing other things and you needed to be the adult or anything like that i don't think so okay that that could be the case (laughs) but i don't think so um i think i was just always that way 
And, and I think if you are that kind of person who's, you know, uh, are you type a, yes a, and a no. goal setter list maker? Yes, but more like in a big picture way. Um, not so much like I have to get married by this age and I have to, n- not in those ways. In what ways then? With writing. I think writing was like the central driving obsessive ambition. And I think if you're that kind of person, you know, who goes to one of these schools or is really ambitious and then things don't, like if I had gone to Iowa, which I would not have been able to get into Iowa because of my work, but let's say, let's say my work was in a different place and I could go to a school You mean like your that. work wasn't good enough to right, get in? there's no way. Um, I mean, probably, I don't think I get into Iowa now. It's that competitive. <laughs> um, if I had... But it's also random. Like there's a yes. little bit of randomness oh, yeah. to the admission. Cause like, you've got to have a diverse group. You have to have an interesting cohort. And it's also just like the time of day, the mood, the person's yes. in, they read your work. Like it's totally. just, it's a little bit that, of a crap. Well, that's shoot. what it's like with every contest and yeah. agent and publisher. Yeah. I mean, Everything. That's what the whole career is really is yeah. just, that's why it's kind of a numbers game. I think in a lot of respects, but if I'd gone to a program like that, it could have really crushed me. I think if I had failed as opposed to MPW <laughs> where, like you said, the expectations were low. Um, so what there wasn't comparing myself to other people's expectations, you know, to the same degree. I, I think it was good for me that I didn't have that kind of path. I'm not sure I could have handled, handled that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think part of me, I probably would have written better. I would have been, I would have felt the need to make sure that my work was up to par. You know, like if, if you're in workshop and people are submitting stuff, that's like blowing your mind. Right. Maybe that would have elevated things. Um, I never paid much attention. I still don't. I mean, I, I mean, I do in the context of this show, but I'm never like, I never clocked myself against other people. That's what I'm talking uh-huh. about. I feel like people who are really successful at this, that's what they're doing. I have no interest. I don't care. Well, it's not really good for the work to do that, but I, I mean, it's, it's, I don't find it healthy. Like I think that, uh, if you're constantly measuring, but then there are people who are driven by it and there are, and I think maybe some awareness of where things are is a good thing. You know, like what uh-huh. are the, what are the people my age who are really doing well at this? What does that work like? Right. Um, I've benefited from doing this show. Uh, I think by, you know, it kind of forces my hand to pay more attention. Maybe that's part of why I do it, but, um, you know what I'm saying? Like, I guess, I guess there are yes. people out there who are really measuring themselves. Well, my, my career is like that. And, and you can measure yourself with very concrete metrics. So I'm a fundraiser. I do corporate foundation relations, but a lot of my colleagues do more major gifts. They work with individual donors and it, it attracts extremely type A, usually women, um, who are what charity, like into charity and giving or am I misreading this for the fundraise, the people who raise the money, you know, it's like a sales force of well-heeled, uh, Bund- ladies like bundlers. usually who, you know, go out there and shake hands with billionaires and, and raise money and it can get very competitive and catty. Um, that can't like, be healthy like sales yeah. because you've got these metrics, you've got goals. Um, some people are very obsessed with hit- I'll give you an example. Uh, one of my colleagues who I met when I first started at my current job, she would sign things uh, with her S's as dollar signs. 
would say, here's to our success, and they would be dollar signs. And these are people that have the dollar goal in mind, and they're completely obsessive about that. And if you're in it for the long game, you see what happens to those people Uh and how miserable they become. And they may have moments of success, but they burn themselves out. They, they aren't thinking about what's, what matters to the donor, to the person they're working with um, in the long run. And they don't make good decisions. They act crazy. They, they act crazy and they make everyone else crazy. Yeah. And it's a very relationship-driven business. And it's the relationships that make it rewarding in the really long term. So the, the people that are best at it have that little bit of the competitive spark. It kind of fuels them. They like to be the one that, that got a big gift. But if you aren't collaborative, if you really aren't thinking about building that relationship in the long term, you're going to be miserable. If it's like your identity is attached to a number, it can, it gets, I mean, I, 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 I could feel myself, I could see, well, I mean, just when you were talking about it, I could feel myself shutting down emotionally. Just mm-hmm. like, it's like, you know, it's like, Oh, and I, but I mean like for real, like faced with stuff like that. Um, I just, I can just feel myself like collapsing internally. Like I can't, I can't, like, it just seems, uh, like a miserable way to be. And you know, I don't want that. I don't want to paint it too dramatically. I mean, people got to make a living and they got to do this stuff, but I can see, I can see exactly how that would be uh, a a path to like deep unhappiness. Mm -hmm. People get so wrapped up in what they do, whether it's writing or, uh, whatever it is. And there can be, I think, healthy ways to identify as a professional and then really unhealthy ways where it gets too intense. And you're, you know, if, if all of your sense of well-being and self-worth is attached to, uh, you know, where you've published, how many books you've published by what age, how many books you've sold. That's not the, that's not the path to happiness. It's a lot like art in that way. Um, you know, another cliche, but when you're a young writer, writers will try to tell you it's, it's process. It's the experience. You cannot be you know, goal focused and, and goal obsessed. And you, you really can't accept that advice. I think it's something you have to live. You have to keep reliving it over and over, no matter how long you've been writing. And professionally, even though it, it should be something that's easily measured, you're not going to have a rich and rewarding experience with it unless it is the day to day interactions with people that are fueling you and not the, Oh my gosh, it's, you know, end of fiscal year. And I got my, <laughs> I got my $10 million in the bucket that I needed it. And that's just not, you know, that's no way to be. And I think the, the work is the same way. If you're so focused on this, you know, mythical Outcomes. product, right. You will, you, you either, if you're genius, I guess, and you have really early success because you're just so brilliant. Maybe that's not an issue, but I think for most people, if that's where your head is, you're you're just going to go nuts. Okay. So yeah. So let's talk about this in the context of writing. I mean, how do you do, how did you finally get your collection done? Like, how did you, did you get to a place where you were able to enjoy it? You were able to shut out thoughts of what's going to be publication. How old am I compared to other people? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how did you dig out the time in the context of this other work? And in the context of life, which I feel like is sort of designed to prevent you from doing this work. It, right. it can often, there's just roadblocks constantly. I don't know if that's the same for you. AT&T. AT&T, AT&T wailing right. children, like whatever it is. It's just like, oh my God, like how do I find time to just be quiet and read right. a book or write a book? Um, how did you do it? 
I didn't really sit down and write this collection as a collection. I, I mentioned before, I spent a lot of time on failed novels. I've always written short fiction. Like, did you, how many novels do you have in the drawer? Um, four. Full novels? Yes. And you tried to sell them? I really only in earnest tried to sell one that I spent many years on. I probably spent a good five years and a big chunk of time during those five years. What's it called? Give it's it called, a name. It's called White Devil. White Devil. And it's, ti- it's timely. It was, it was about white issues uh-huh. and, and whiteness kind of before that was this top of mind. Like in the ether. Yeah. And now it's there. Now it's there, but it's, you know, it's, it's not a very good book. You know so. that? You feel that for real? Like mm-hmm. you feel clear on that? Mm-hmm. You see, do you know why? I, I set up some structural problems for myself right from the beginning that I, that I don't think I ever could get around. I, I think when it comes to novels, I've had a kind of a history of self-sabotage. I'll set up an impossible task. Or, I don't know, maybe I just didn't think it through. Um, like structural stuff? Mostly? Yeah, yeah. God, I'm almost done with this book and I'm like... The first person ever to read it is reading it right now. And I'm just working very hard to not be neurotic about it. And like in, you know, there's like the angel and the devil and the angel's like, Hey, you know, it's not the best book in the world. It's not the worst book in the world. She's going to have notes, but she's going to like some, you know what I'm saying? And then the devil's just like, you fucking moron. Like this is insufferable. And she's going to try to find a really gentle way of telling you. Like, I don't know, you know, like it's just this, I I mean, I think I know what I have, but I also have, uh, like a healthy skepticism. Like maybe I have, maybe I'm so close to it. I can't see the forest for the trees. This is what makes me so frustrated about writing versus every other art form. And I've dabbled in lots of, of things over time. Um, I used to dance a lot. Um, like professionally, no, throughout all of high school and college, uh, I had like a dance scholarship little dance college when I graduated from what kind of high dance? school. Modern dance mostly and hip hop and other things. But So you're a good dancer. So you are musical. I have rhythm. Yeah, I have rhythm. I don't have any of the you're other. You're a good dancer. I'm tone deaf, but I have rhythm. Okay. So, um, and I've, I've acted in a few plays. Um, I've done visual art. And with each one of those things, I had a really clear sense of here's the upper limit of my ability. Dance, it's easy. You look, you're looking in the mirror. You know, I don't know how you can be delusional about your abilities as a dancer. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and um, and I'm dance, an incredible dancer. And dance was one of the few things I ever loved that I wasn't competitive at all about. Like I loved dancing with people who were way better than I was. I but you can you can turn that part you can turn that part of your brain off and just dance. With dance, I could. Wow, it's maybe the only thing I've ever been able to do that with. And I loved being surrounded by. I get frustrated by my physical limitations, but I never. I think I knew I would never be really great at it, and I just loved doing it. And you didn't like, see, here's where I'm at. Like I'm, if I'm dancing at a wedding, I'm like, what facial expression do I make? <laughs> like these people, you know what I'm saying? Cause I don't want to, you know, it's like that level of neurotic detail. Where I'm like, ah, I don't want people looking at me and I'm making a weird face. And you know, I'm too in my head. I can't be in my body that way. Most men are Yeah. when it comes to dancing. I think you, but, unless they're professional dancers or they're, they're super drunk or they're super drunk and yeah. then they're just making everyone else uncomfortable. And then it's usually. just like, dude, quit grinding on me. <laughs> But even with um, things like, like visual art, I had a professor that wanted me to um, major, major in fine art in college, and I did some plays in college, and I could just tell, like, I'm okay at this, but, you know, Joe over there just has this, this something that I do not have, 
and I'm never really going to be, I'm just going to be passable at this thing. And I could tell, and I think it's, the product is different and you can get a better sense of whether you've really got the gift with writing. Everybody thinks they can write a novel. You have no, I, the, the angel and devil you described the whole time, no matter what you think, like, I don't know if I'm a complete hack. And it's so crazy because I could be like the, you like, you watch American Idol. You could be the, you know, the what's his face. The one that like Simon Cowell's just like, get yeah. the fuck out of here. Yeah. You could be, you could be the, with writing. I feel like any time I okay, could be that guy. That's, that's an that is such an interesting thing to bring up because I've always thought that was a, I don't watch American Idol, but like I, I've seen the clips, you know, they somehow they've found, to, you know, found their way to me. Like these people really don't know how bad they suck. No. Well, you know, your voice sounds different inside your own head. I don't know. I think I would know. But you could record it. That's the thing with your voice. You might think it sounds good, but if you record it and you play it back. I don't know. They, you no, know these people, I think these good. people are nuts, but like, I feel like I would know. Like, I, I know right now I would never stand up in front of Simon Cowell and try right. to. But with writing, you're in that space of like, how much do I suck? It's hard. All yeah. The time. I mean, I, did you have, you had teachers when you were growing up tell you that you were good at this? Some did, but I, I, I think I wanted to do it before that. Just because you love to read. Yeah. Yeah. I don't ever remember not wanting to do it. See, I always, I always, I've never, I always like, it was always in my head, like, okay, I'm going to do something with writing. Like, it seems that way. I mean, memory is really faulty, but like, that was always what teachers were telling me. That was always what I was mm -hmm. good at. I was always doing, like, I was always, like, proofreading my friend's papers and, like, no, you got to say it this way. And you know what I'm saying? Like, I was the guy on the soccer team who, like, wrote the lyrics to, like, the song that we all sang for the coach on the video. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> it, was always, it always came to me to, like, have to right. do that stuff. So, like, there's something in there, communica you know, c communicatively. But I think that's maybe um, part of it. You know, it's part of the skill set that you need. But then there's also things like structure. There's also things like, you know, the ability to inhabit the interior world of a character. And, you know, it's a complicated gift for the it people is. who, you know what I'm saying? It's a complicated skill set and it's not just one thing. And so, you know, I wish there was some way to like figure out in a really clear cut way whether or not you got it. <laughs> so somebody could just tell us. <laughs> like, and you'll never know. I mean, and I, I've started to feel, I think the depressing thing about, publishing a book is that it's really brought home for me more than ever that there are just this handful of writers that are that are so good that are so meant to be writing and that I wish we were having that I almost wish there were fewer people uh writing and publishing and that everyone was sort of reading and talking about this this small who would, who books. would they be? Like, give me a couple of people that you think would fall into that I category. I always think of Zadie Smith. She's the first person I think of when I think of like the people that were born to write that just fully formed. Like, Got what it. the hell? Just as a human being, I don't, I don't understand. She's on a different plane. Than she, she's the whole total package. I saw her She's read. She's got personal style. I feel like she just yes. knows that like she just came out of the box. It was like, wow, okay. I saw her read um, in New York with Jonathan Franzen, David Foster Wallace, and Dave Eggers all in one evening. And she just blew them out of the water. Really? Yes. It was like I was sweating. 
Huh. She's she's something else, and the, the, and I would also put those writers in that same category of you know people that are really born to do this. Yeah. Um, and I don't think there are. I think that's a really small number, and you really have to accept like, okay, if I can just be very good, and I'm never going to be great, can I can I live with that? And do I still want to do this work? I think that, what's the John Wooden? You know who John Wooden yes, is? Yes, <laughs> I work at UCLA. So the pyramid of success is on the wall. But I mean, he had some real wisdom. Success is making the most of what you've got, you know, and uh, doing the best you're able to do with what you've got. Uh, it sounds hokey, but that's probably true. Well, you can have success and be a total hack. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's success. And but there's, there's true success. Yeah. Like that feeling of deep inner peace or whatever, like knowing you gave it your best. You did everything you could with the gifts that you have to make the most of them. That has to be enough. And if it's not, then there's something else that's going on. I just always think is that, that hokey. Th Are you just, no, like, oh, no, not yeah. at all. I just, for what I, what I obsess about is the opportunity cost. Like I've put all this effort into this thing that, you know, maybe you're not that good at. And what about all these other things that you maybe could have been really good oh, at God. that you just, yeah. Careers I'm, or I'm right there. I mean, I'm finishing this. I mean, now, I mean, I don't mean to complain, but I'm like right at this precipice mm -hmm. with this book. And it's like, I've put so much into it and who knows what's going to happen. <laughs> I don't know how good it is, you know, or what people would think of it. If it will even find a publisher. And it's like, what if I spent all that time and energy and it just was just for nothing. Well, was this what, was this what like, you know, Diaz was thinking about before like Oscar Wilde was he, <laughs> was he sitting around thinking, I don't uh, know if this book is any good or was yeah. he thinking like, yeah, I spent all this time and now I'm going to, you know, but I should find literature. Do you ever have situations when, when you were writing, did, did you ever have, um, really positive feelings or like intensely, um, uh, you know, intense optimism, delusions of grandeur where you were writing dog years and you're like, you know what? Like this is fucking good. I'm good at, I'm great at this. Like these are really good. Do you ever have that thought along with the, you know, less excited, uh, less positive? Not really. I'm more, I'm more likely to have that thought if I'm on, if I'm writing a novel and I'm deep into that lost space, I guess, where you've been writing all day and you're kind of drunk either maybe you're literally drunk <laughs> or you feel yeah. drunk and you, you just, you're on something and you think like, yeah, this is really good. And it is like you're stoned and you come back the next day and it's appalling or it was actually kind of good and you forgot you even wrote that. So I kind of, I can get into that space sometimes when I'm writing a novel with stories. I don't know. I know I get really, I get excited about the idea. I'm one of those people that it's the conception that gets okay. me real amped up when I'm just thinking about writing the story. I'm usually less excited when I start to commit it to paper. But I wrote those stories over many, many years, and I wasn't writing them as a collection. So I wrote a story, you know, and then and that's just a small number of the stories that I've written in the last um, decade or so. But after I took that workshop with, with Tony Dore, um, I really started focusing more on each story as its own kind of universe okay. and allowing myself to do that. I don't, I think I saw stories as some kind of means to an end before. And mm -hmm. when I stopped doing that, the stories got a lot better. What was the end? I guess novels. 
Oh. You know, I have to write stories because... It's like training ground. Yeah, you submit them and you build a publication history, but everyone wants your novel, so you have to do both simultaneously. I don't know. Um, even though I, most of my favorite writers are story writers, so I don't know why I was doing that to myself. But when I saw sort of the level of the attention to detail that he puts into every single story, I realized each story better be like a novel. I need to give that amount of attention to it. It can't just be you know, a throwaway. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing too, is that you talk about what separates these people, you know, like Zadie Smith, like what is it about Zadie Smith aside from like, you know, some innate ability, she's got a lot of innate ability. She had, uh, you know, she's got like the DNA parents. I don't know what her parents did, but like, you know, what we were talking about earlier, the circumstances of your birth, the people you grow up around, the environment that you're in, all of that stuff had a, had its role. Um, but then it's also, I think like how she approaches the work, um, the discipline, the logic that she applies to it. You know, I feel like, I feel like that stuff maybe doesn't get as much of, uh, attention as it should, you know, like just a lot, like, I think people are very rational. Like you asked, like, did Juno Diaz sit around thinking like this before, uh, you know, he publishes novels? Mm. No. Maybe not. Maybe he's got that discipline or maybe, um, I don't know. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I feel like people who are really good have like an ability to process that sort of stuff quickly and move on. <laughs> or am I, I don't think, no, I don't think they're, I think a lot of writers are crazy. So there, I think there are lots that have like a great first success and then have no idea what they're supposed to do with themselves. I mean, I think if you happen to be that talented, disciplined, and then also kind of a grounded human being, who can stay focused and rebound from success. That's an even rarer breed of, of person. Yeah. Most, I mean, there's a lot of writers that are, that are freaks. Can you work yourself into greatness? Yes. You can be a person who just like, I am going to like, they might not have all the natural ability, but they work so fucking hard. They become great. I think I know examples who, um, Michael Cunningham would be my first example. His first novel which most people haven't read, uh, Golden State, is embarrassing. Um, His second two novels are really emotionally rich and interesting, but sort of not the perfect novel. And then The Hours um, is a new level of ambition, and it's, it's the one novel where his ambition and his craft kind of intersect. And then after that, they never have intersected again. So absolutely. I think the combination of the discipline um, and then being there when this, that moment came, when that story came, he was there um, because he'd been working so hard. I also think, um, I, I, I think Marissa Silvers had a really fascinating trajectory. I mean, she has grown leaps and bounds as a writer since her first book. Um, that's, pretty, uh, that's pretty amazing. But the, the person who I think is probably the most, um, I'm, I'm going to, I'm not going to blank. I'm not going to blank on the name. What is wrong with me? Do you know the book? Maybe yes. I can help. How I cannot blank on the name. What's the book? The Orphan Master's Son. Adam Johnson? Adam Johnson. I yeah. wanted to call him Adam something else. <laughs> no, it's a... I don't understand. I, I feel like he was one of those writers that was kind of a, a dude writer. Okay. Like writing kind of, I don't know, techie trendy, I don't know, good, good, but not 
not Orphan Master's son. Right. And, I mean, he's a genius. Now that I've seen him and heard him talk and know more about him, I think, okay, he was probably just a genius that was kind of effing around a little bit. I'm not sure if he worked himself into greatness. But to look at his career trajectory, it's like, wow, where did that come from? I don't understand. Versus a Zadie Smith where it just, here I am. Here I you am. Know, I've arrived. So I do think that now. Michael Cunningham's always been a huge inspiration to me. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you know him? No, no. Oh. I've heard him read. Um, and I think sort of my writing style is, is similar to his and also my, some of my self-sabotage when it comes to, I don't, I don't know. You haven't read Specimen Days, have you? No. So some of his attempts after the hours have been really interesting. They're, they're quite uneven, but I read them all because I love Michael Cunningham. You love him in the, as a person and as a writer? I, I, I love his sentences. You so do. So pretty much read anything he writes. Oh. But, but, but I know that that perfect intersection only happened really once. And I think for myself, like, I might be that kind of person that maybe one time I have to hold out that dream or fantasy <laughs> that one time could be like 15 years from now, 20 years from now, I'm going to get it. But I'm one good, one, one really great book. That's all you need. That's all you need. I'd be satisfied with that. For most writers, that's even the writers that wrote 25 books. There is the you, one book that the everyone one book. holds up. That's so. the thing. I mean, I mean, really, like how many writers out there really wrote five masterpieces? Very, very few. few. Very few. And a lot of it, I think, too, is like, you know, so like having the time and the ability and the willingness and the discipline to grind it out. It's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Like writing a novel, writing a book, whatever it is, like a book-length project. Uh, is a, a lot of, um, a lot of, I don't know what's the, there's a lot, there's a big cost. It takes a lot out of you. Oh, yeah. It takes a lot out of me. I don't know. Like I, I know that all work is hard and people have to put in hours no matter what they do. But I try to explain this to my wife, who's not a writer and I come home, I've been working for a few hours or whatever, and I'm just wrecked and I'm jittery and I'm like. It turn you know I turn myself inside out sort of you know when I'm doing it and it's just uh, takes it doesn't I don't finish and feel like really energized <laughs> with like giddy energy you know I feel I feel drained. That only happens to like Joyce Carol Oates or yeah where she's like yay like, Stephen you know. King or someone I don't know yeah I mean you know it's I guess it's a different situation. What's it like for you? I mean when you spend a lot of time working. I don't ever spend a lot of time working, so I think that's part of it. I just don't have much. I have no time. Yeah. So that focus, it forces me to really focus on the time that I do have. And I think the thing that's changed for me is, yes, I have this, this dream that I'm going to get better. And I have to sort of, I have to live in that delusion like my, my relatives did in their hovels, <laughs> thinking I'm, I'm something pretty hot, you yeah. know? Um, I have to have that, but the thing that's changed in the last maybe five or six years is the work, having the work there is this, now this lens through which I see the rest of my life and that is its own reward. And I think poets just naturally get that, that being a poet is a way you are experiencing the world. It's not just about the time you're spent writing. It's the way you're viewing everything else around you and I don't know how I lost that so much. And now I realize like, that's why I've never quit. Cause I've seen people way more talented and more disciplined than I am all quit. I'm like, why are they quitting? You know, they're so much better than I am. 
And I think that that's, that was the shift for me. It makes all the rest of my time interesting. And I mean, I sit through some really boring, like medical conferences, um, stuff that's way over my head all the time. And all of it is material to me. So it can just, even if you're writing about office, you know, drudgery, that can, it can make, I know someone who, um, just published her first collection, uh, Kevin Kramer starts on Monday and it, she works in payroll, like payroll software. I don't think there's anything more mundane than payroll software, but what, she's... T.S. Eliot worked in a bank or whatever, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah. Who worked for the, did Kafka work for the, like, uh, what did he do? Uh, he did something he's like that an was accountant like or something. mundane. Someone else yeah. worked for the IRS. Yeah. Um, and that just became this, you know, this rich material for her. So it, it just, you feel like you're making all the rest of the time have some kind of, of meaning. That doesn't mean it's like that much more fun to go to the page necessarily, but. Yeah, I, what I've found, um, like working as intensely as I have for the past like six to eight weeks, it's the most intensely I've written in a long time. Uh, just because of, you know, demands on time, the, um, you know, all that, all that happens in a life, you know, it's not easy to get into a rhythm and being in the rhythm. And I'm like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like I'm getting so much from this, like as exhausted as I just was talking, you know, was telling you about as exhausted as I can feel when it's all done, it gives a lot and it's a rich way to live reading books, trying to make literature trying to make sense of your experience, like putting the words in the right order. Mm-hmm. Like I can't think of a, of a better thing to do, um, with one's time, you know, at least one's free time. I, I, you know what I'm saying? Like in this life, like it's a, it's a good, noble, serious thing to do. And I guess I've always felt like that. I mean, like, it's like, give me another option. Like what's better? Maybe playing music. Like if you can really play music, right. Uh, I guess if you could paint like basically any other art, if you, if you could do it, but, uh, I'm joking. Like, you know, writing is really hard work, but I think it has maybe the deepest rewards. Um, if you read a book that really gets you, that's, I don't know. I think maybe it works on you more deeply than like a really great song. Not that a song can't get in your bones, but you know what I'm saying? Like it resonates longer. For me, it does. I mean, I think there's just this empathetic experience. I think literature has that. And other other narrative forms have that power too. I mean, I think even television has that power. That's why representation on things like television is, is so important. It's because it actually has shows have moved the needle on issues like gay rights. Television has. That's true, yeah. And so representation is really important, but I also think just the empathetic nature of, of narration, you're, you become you know, the character um, when it's a really good story, no matter how resistant you are to becoming that character. And there's all of this power in that. Um, I mean, I don't think I'll ever write that kind of literature, but you know, reading something like, I think one of my most formative books was the autobiography of Malcolm X. And I don't, I don't think I've ever been that immersed in another person's point of view as I was in that book, but it, it really taught me this is what books can do. They can make you completely live someone else's life and that will shape 
your perception of the world forever. You'll always have that. You know, it can be a dangerous thing too. The Fountainhead is one of those books. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. that, you walk around as a 15 year old or whatever, and that's how you <laughs> see the world uh -huh. um, through that lens. So it's, it's a very powerful tool for, for good or bad. That's right. That's well said. I mean, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I think that, um, it's nice to spend time doing this as uncertain as it can feel in so many ways, you know, just like we've been talking about, am I good at it? Uh, is this, you know, is this going to be worth a shit to anybody? Uh, am I wasting my time? But, you know, to talk about it in those ways, like the way that it, it enriches a life and just the nobleness of the pursuit, like you don't necessarily have to get there, but to be on that path, like there's worse, there's worse paths to take. Uh, you know, you could do much worse. And even, you know, even if you've got to balance it as most, uh, most writers do with like other stuff, other career stuff that might not be as exciting or, um, might not carry the kind of depth charge that like reading and writing does. Mm -hmm. Um, but like that is like the oxygen you need to be able to sustain yourself, you know? So maybe in the end it's like, so what if you're not Shakespeare? You know, like you spend your life doing this, like it's a life well, well lived. I mean, you wouldn't be doing this at this point unless you absolutely had to do it. Right. I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the point that I'm at. It's like, I think right now it's like, okay, if I finish this book and I sell this book and there's actually a publisher, there's a publisher out there who says, man, we want this. This is great. Maybe we'll give them a two book deal. You know, like this is, these are the sorts of fantasies that you entertain. <laughs> Um, and I'm like, okay, then I'll write another one and I'll just go like all in and like, this is what I'm going to pursue. And like, I'm just going to go as far as I can. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm going to just grab on and not let go and work as hard as I possibly can. Or if it turns out that I'm wrong then <laughs> I don't know, you know, that's... I, I feel like Jay Ryan was one of those yeah. people that just like Jay Ryan straight yeah, committed to it. And then has just been 100%, you know, really treated it like once he, he transitioned from his career to, to this career, he just, is but he's so, he's so smart and logical. He set himself up. He saved enough money right. in his old job to be able to like have a couple years to like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I know, but how did he know when the time was right? Well, he got a book deal. He got a book deal and then his book did well and he started to see things go and like, you know, it's a risk. It's a, it's a gamble. He made a gamble, but he, he didn't make a wild gamble. This is just me assessing. Right. I mean, he no, might, I think he might right. think differently, but, um, he's, he measured it and he said, okay, if I'm ever going to take the chance and try to do this, it's now. And so I'm going to go for it and bless him. And you know what? Two or three years from now, if it's not working, I have a feeling he'll be able to go back to what he was doing or find something else. Like, right. He seems like he knows how to maneuver. He's good with people. He's good with people. That never hurts. Yeah, exactly. So, um, it's been really fun talking with you. I hope I didn't over talk. This has no. been, this has been for those of you listening, this has been, I think logistically the most chaotic situation I've ever put one of my guests through. Uh, it was like an hour late. I despise being late. And, uh, Melissa has been so lovely the entire time and I really appreciate it. I congratulate you on your collection. Uh, and I wish you well on whatever you write next. Thanks. I've, I listened to this so often when I'm on the 405 and, uh, and think about what I would say to very, 
<laughs> in response, we avoided many of the topics that I <laughs> hoped to avoid. Good. <laughs> Thankfully. So um, it's been such a treat. Wait, wait, me. wait, wait. What did you want to avoid? Let's get it to him now. Uh, drugs. Drugs. God. God. That stuff. Well, I think my listeners, I mean, it's We didn't probably... get too caught up in high school or anything. Did you, did you have a crazy experience? No, no. No, no not at all. No, I just want to skip past Let's all that. Skip past all that. <laughs> Well, maybe we'll have you back on. We'll do the drugs and gods episode, but I talk a lot about drugs and God, uh, on this show. And like, maybe it's nice to have an episode where there's not like the drugs and God. Yeah. We got real into the, the MPW is what did it. The MPW got us. Then we just, yeah. we basically, this was like a craft talk. Yeah. We talked about the writing life, but it was really fun. Well, I appreciate the time. And uh, again, I wish you all the best. Thanks so much, Brad. Okay, guys, there you go. That is Melissa Yancey. Her debut story collection is called Dog Years, out there now from the University of Pittsburgh Press, winner of the Drew Hines Literature Prize. Go get your copy. Support a debut author. Uh, you can find Melissa online at melissayancey.com. You can also follow her on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Mel Yancey. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Weigh in. Don't forget about the app. This podcast has its own official app. It's free. The Other People with Brad Listy app. Get the app. Sign up for premium. Get access to the entire archive, 75 cents a month. You know the drill, right? Get the app. It's the best way to listen. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I touched upon it briefly in the conversation with Melissa, but I, I need to emphasize what a crazy shit show it was when she showed up here. I think we got started almost an hour and a half late. She had to leave that, you know, she had to leave uh, my house and go to a nearby coffee shop and wait it out while I had workmen here, while there was chaos. I was trying to manage the chaos. And, uh, my kids, my wife, like everyone was here and then she's here. And she could not have been nicer. She was so patient and, uh, you know, was putting up with all of this and then sat down with me for an hour and uh, was a terrific guest. So my thanks to Melissa for tolerating that scene. I'm very, I, I'm very uh, conscientious about that sort of stuff. I really hate to be late. I hate it when things don't work seamlessly. I want my guests to feel as though they're in good hands. <laughs> and, uh, you know. Sometimes there are extenuating circumstances, I guess. Uh, please remember that Jean-Michel Basquiat died of a heroin overdose at age 27 and that the word serendipity was coined by Horace Walpole in a fairy story written in 1754. That is it for now. Thanks once more to Melissa Yancey. Go get dog ears. Thanks to you guys for tuning in. And uh, please stay tuned for next week. There's going to be another episode. Did you know that? Coming at you from uh, this space here in Los Angeles. I will be talking to somebody else and sharing it with you. That's the way this works. Do you understand the routine? Are you with me? Should I go back to two episodes a week? I've been toying with that idea. I feel like booking the show, maybe that's biting off more than I can chew. But now that I have this nice space, I have this new gear, I'm thinking, well, why don't I try to get two people in here a week? Can I do that? Can I make the space? Can I make the time? I don't know. I've got about, I think five solid days. This could be, you know, this could be too generous, but I think I have five solid days of work left on my novel and then it'll be done. The draft will be done. Not the book, but the draft. I need like another five good solid writing days. 
I would imagine after that I will have a, a functional draft of the book. And uh, what else? I don't know. What else can I tell you? I don't know what to tell you. Oh, I just finished Preparation for the Next Life by Atticus Lish. I'm always way late on everything. I read Jonathan Franzen's fiction for the first time this year. I read uh, The Goldfinch. <laughs> and now I'm reading Preparation for the Next Life. Man, that is a book that's going to stay with me for a while. Just brutal. But in a good, you know, a good brutal. You guys like my new microphones? I'm waiting for this song to end. That's what I'm doing. Waiting for this song to fucking end. It takes a long time. This is a long song. Maybe this song is too long. Is this song too long? Or is that wrong? This song is too long. It's so wrong. <laughs> 